Well, I want to start uh, this morning uh, a little different, uh, just by talking about the Trinity uh, in general. I just want to talk about the Trinity and bring this to our attention. Uh, as Christians, uh, we believe in one God in three persons. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each is distinct from the other, and yet they are also inseparable from the other at the same time. Eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, uh, omnipresent, perfect, unchanging, self-sufficient, uh, uh, and they have lived eternally uh, in peace and harmony uh, with each other. Perfect bliss, lacking nothing, each loving each other, glorifying each other, honoring each other perfectly for all time. And then God created. God created, right? Uh, on the, uh, he created, uh, and then on the sixth day, God created man, uh, Adam. Uh, and later, uh, he put Adam into a deep sleep, uh, and he takes a rib from Adam. And from that rib, he fashions a woman uh, and presents the woman uh, to Adam. Uh, and Adam says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's what Adam said about Eve. And then God said, Genesis 2.24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here is the first marriage created by God and in God's presence and shows God's intention for marriage. Uh, the woman and the man have become one flesh. Well, what does that mean, actually, to become one flesh? You know, chemists can combine uh, sodium and chloride, and they can, can, uh, can create salt out of that, or other compounds to become one. The salt and the chloride combine, and they're no longer sodium and chloride, they're now salt, right? Two uh, separate things that have become something new. Uh, an artist can take his palette and mix some red paint and some yellow paint and create orange paint. Uh, and there is no longer red and yellow, now there's orange. Two things become one, a new color. But marriage is different, isn't it? Because though God says you are one flesh, yet still, somehow, we remain distinct, uh, separate from each other, even though we are one flesh. Now, ideally, the husband and the wife uh, would love each other sacrificially, each uh, wanting to give to the other more than we receive in return, uh, loving sacrificially and glorifying each other. But the problem is that we still have retained this sin nature that we have. And sometimes that sin nature uh, causes us to want to glorify ourselves and to, and to get uh, more than we give. Uh, and oftentimes uh, the result is divorce, which is separating what God has joined together. But this message is, is, though it's about divorce, it's about more than divorce. And so this, this message is not meant to shame anybody who has been divorced because really uh, this passage is about sin, uh, all sin. It's about the sinful condition of our own hearts and, and the reason why uh, we need Jesus as desperately as we do. Uh, so in this passage today, Jesus is going to expose uh, the Pharisees' opinion about divorce, but really the Pharisees' hearts toward God, uh, exposing sin, uh, all sin, not just the sin of divorce. And when we think about this passage, I want us to be thinking not just about divorce, because that is one sin uh, in certain circumstances, but all sin, 
All sin is what is being talked about here in this passage. And all sin is an offense against God, a falling short of his perfect character, a violation of his law, and a failure to imitate the relationship that exists between the members of the Trinity. Now, to talk about how Jesus exposed the Pharisees' hearts in this particular situation, we're going to need to do a little bit of background about divorce in the first century. Divorce in the first century. So uh, many of you know, uh, just from, from uh, watching the news or whatever, and uh, being a, a person who lives in our, in our times, uh, how easy it is to get divorced nowadays, right? In, in Texas, for example, there are seven reasons legally that you can get divorced. One of them is called insupportability, which is the same thing as irreconcilable differences. Uh, there is living apart for three years, Cruelty, abandonment, if one of them is confined to a mental hospital, uh, conviction of a felony, uh, and adultery. Uh, so those are the seven valid reasons uh, in Texas to get married or to get divorced. Uh, and most states, yeah, <laughs> to get married. Yeah, that's a, that's a great qualities in a spouse that you ought to be looking for. Look for a convict. Um, so slip of the tongue. Uh, seven reasons to get divorced uh, in Texas. Uh, so uh, Texas, and this is true for most states, right? Uh, divorce is very easy to get. They allow divorce for almost any reason, and almost anything can qualify as irreconcilable differences. Uh, if we think divorce is easy to get today, it was even easier to get in the first century, if you can imagine that. Uh, women usually had no protection uh, in the event that a man wanted divorce. Uh, a, a man could get a divorce very easily. Uh, and after the divorce, women usually had no means of protection or support uh, in their homes because they typically were not the homeowner or the breadwinner. Uh, they were typically the, the ones who did the homemaking and the caretaking. And so uh, they were in a very vulnerable position uh, if they uh, happened to be divorced by their husband. Now, Jews, of course, in that day, should have had a very, very high opinion of marriage because they knew God's view of marriage because God gave them the law through Moses. In the verse we looked at earlier, Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's opinion about marriage and, and what marriage is supposed to look like. And God's opinion on it hasn't changed, right? Uh, as, as we go through the whole Old Testament, we get to the book of Malachi, uh, written 1,100 years after a Genesis, and still God says in Malachi, I hate divorce. And uh, Moses also wrote uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy has uh, a very specific fact pattern uh, in which uh, Moses wrote that divorce is allowed. And, and I want us to look in a little bit of detail about this passage, because this is the passage uh, that the Pharisees used to try to trip Jesus up in this passage that we're going to be looking at today. So as I read this, I want us to pay very close attention to what this passage says and what this passage doesn't say, all right? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then 
her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you is as an inheritance. So did you notice all of the conditional statements in that passage that I just read? Uh, this passage does not give carte blanche for divorce for any reason as the Pharisees interpreted it. It's limited to a very, very specific set of circumstances. If he finds no favor in her, because of indecency, and if he writes her a certificate of, of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out, and she leaves his house, and she marries another man, and the second husband divorces or dies, then the first husband cannot remarry that, that wife uh, because he has made her an adulteress, and that is an abomination to God. So that is a very limited fact pattern, and certainly not enough to build an entire theology of divorce on. But this is what the Pharisees did. So God's theology of divorce is, in fact, quite different. We've already talked about it. God's heart is Genesis 2.24, the two become one flesh. When we look at this Deuteronomy passage, it actually limits divorce, right? It, it puts limits on divorce, so a husband couldn't impulsively divorce his wife and then, you know, change his mind later and decide that he wants to uh, remarry her again. But what we do see in the Deuteronomy passage is that there is a reference to a reason for divorce, and that is indecency, if he finds some indecency in her. And this is a cause for various interpretations because uh, the word is not specifically defined, although it does seem to mean sexual indecency. It could mean that, that the wife was found not to be a virgin after uh, they were married. Or there could be uh, some kind of improper, immoral sexual conduct after the marriage. And in that circumstance, he could divorce his wife. Now, by Jesus' day, uh, there, were, there were two completely different schools uh, regarding uh, the, the thought on divorce. And one of them uh, was the conservative teaching of Rabbi Shammai. And he said that you could get divorced, but only for unchastity or adultery only. That was it, the only reasons. But then there was the, the school of Rabbi Hillel, uh, who had a broad view of indecency. Uh, and indecency could be if, he burned, if she burned his meal. That was indecency, and that was enough cause uh, to divorce uh, his wife. So nothing immoral, nothing unchaste at all. I mean, if that were the cause, uh, just about every one of us, man and woman, would have cause to be divorced, right? Because we've all done something uh, that has offended the other. And in that day, uh, to finalize a divorce, all you had to do was write her a certificate of divorce that says, I hereby release you from the bonds of marriage, uh, and you're free to go marry another, and do that in the presence of two witnesses, and that was it. It was over. The marriage was over, and as I said, the woman was left completely vulnerable, vulnerable by that. Now, the Pharisees, of course, followed the liberal school of Hillel because they wanted to have divorce for any reason at all. And by Jesus' day, a divorce was rampant. So that's kind of the background. That, that is kind of the, the minefield that is set for Jesus uh, from these seemingly innocuous questions that we get to from the Pharisees uh, in chapter 10 here of Mark. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 4 and see how the Pharisees use their interpretation of the law to try to trap Jesus. Verses 1 through 4, getting up, 
he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and, ca- and crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So you see the Pharisees' trap, right? They're trying, first of all, to see if they can get Jesus to take a stand here one way or another, because uh, if he says yes or no, uh, he's either going to offend the followers of Rabbi Shammai or the followers of Rabbi Hillel. So he's going to have one group of people that he offends. And secondly, what I want you to see is that this happened as Jesus is making his way from where we were last week uh, in Galilee. Now he's making his way south toward Jerusalem, uh, on his way to Jerusalem. And now he is here, Bethany beyond the Jordan, and this is the region of Perea. Now the region of Perea is under the authority of Herod Antipas. Do you remember Herod Antipas? Uh, He's the one uh, who John the Baptist said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife when Herod Antipas married uh, his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. So it's it's no coincidence that, that the Pharisees' questioning happens in this jurisdiction, right? Because Herod already beheaded John the Baptist, and so the Pharisees are trying to do all they can to see if Jesus will say something that offends Herod himself, so maybe Herod Antipas will kill Jesus and take care of Jesus for the Pharisees. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, so with all this background, we can see that there's, there's a whole lot more going on here than an innocent question about you know, Jesus' views on divorce, as though they're really curious about what Jesus thinks about divorce. They don't care about that at all. Uh, what they're trying to do is to trap Jesus, plain and simple. And so in verses 3 to 4, uh, Jesus turns the tables on them, completely uh, flips the script on them, and tests them inset, instead, which is what makes Jesus' question in verse 3 so piercing. What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Now, they could have answered from Genesis 2.24, right? They could have said, because Moses said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and, she'll, she shall, and they shall become one flesh. But what do the Pharisees do? They answer from Deuteronomy, the, the liberal interpretation on a very specific fact pattern, uh, which said that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And this answer shows that their hearts were not right. Their hearts were not right. The Pharisees wanted to know, is it lawful? Is it lawful? Uh, that's, that's the wrong question, right? Because uh, to them, the question of obeying the law was not, uh, how do we best exemplify God's heart and to show our love and appreciation to him, our, our obedience and dedication to him? Or, or how can we uphold the intent of the law? No, to them, the question is, how much can we get away with and still be considered to be within the bounds of the law? Uh, What is permissible, not what God actually wants from us? And so those are two completely different mindsets, right? One of them is, is wholly dedicated with a heart towards God, loving him and trying to be obedient to him. And the other is about legalism, looking for loopholes, trying to figure out a way uh, out of, of their commitment, pushing the boundaries of the law, but still somehow being able in their own minds to rationalize and call themselves law-abiding. So here's where we want to say that, that 
this passage is about divorce, and yet it's about so much more than divorce, isn't it? Because we can have this kind of attitude about God's commands, not about divorce necessarily, but about all kinds of things. How much can we get away with? And so this passage is about divorce only because the Pharisees raised the question about divorce, but Jesus uses divorce as, the, as an object lesson to talk about and expose all sin. And what he's going to say in verse 5 uh, is that Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your hearts. And that is the human condition. We have hearts that are hard toward God. And so the way it plays out in, in our own lives is that we look for loopholes. We try and figure out a way around God's commands, the way uh, that we can, can do what we want to do, and yet somehow uh, still rationalize that and call it God's will, uh, rather than accepting what God says as good and obeying him from the heart. And so the Pharisees, their hearts were dark. They were not interested in Jesus' answer about divorce. They were trying to figure out how to murder Jesus, right? Uh, and so this is what's going on in their hearts. And so Jesus is going to expose their sin here in verses 5 through 9. The, the trap was set. Let's see how Jesus answers them. Verses 5 through 9, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I just think it is amazing how brilliant Jesus was. Now, he's God, of course he's brilliant, but every time uh, they tried to, to set a trap before him, he befuddled them. They had no idea how to answer him. He always had the exact right thing to say. So he wouldn't fall for their trap. He wasn't afraid of Herod Antipas uh, and his views on divorce. And, and Jesus' views about divorce were not going to be dictated by Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai or what the Pharisees thought. Uh, Jesus wasn't influenced by any of that stuff. Jesus referred to what God thought about marriage, and that was Genesis uh, 2.24, which we've talked about already. Uh, he answered from Genesis 1.21, first of all, God created them male and female, and second of all, the Genesis 2.24 passage that we've already referenced. And so, uh, looking at both of those passages together, that's Jesus's theology about marriage and divorce. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, at this point, let's just notice that, that Mark made no exceptions uh, about marriage and, and how marriage can end. There are no exceptions for adult and immorality. But because we are on this topic of divorce, let's just raise the parallel passage uh, in Matthew because Jesus did allow an exception for divorce uh, in the case of immorality. And that's interesting because in Matthew 19, uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, Jesus said, Because of the hardness of your heart, uh, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So the word there for uh, immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our English word pornography from. And it's variously translated in different versions of the Bible. Uh, the NASB has unchastity. Uh, the, the Net Bible, the ESV, has immorality. Uh, the NIV has sexual immorality. The CEV Bible has terrible sexual sin. And the King James Version calls it fornication. 
Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, it says, Everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the words are the same. Uh, immorality in one passage, unchastity the sa- the, uh, in the other passage. The same word, porneia, is the word that Jesus used. And so this word, it's a hard word to define. It's got a wide range of meanings, which is why it's interpreted or translated so many different ways in the different versions of the Bible. Uh, but it's, it's a more general meaning uh, than adultery, which adultery is just uh, having sex with a woman who is not your spouse or a man who is not your spouse. But porneia includes adultery, but it also includes any uh, immoral sexual act, uh, pretty much anything other than sex between a man and a woman who are married to each other. Uh, And in those cases, the exception says that the violator uh, has already broken the marriage covenant by sexual sin. And in that case, uh, he allows an exception for divorce. Now, Jesus didn't explore every possible hypothetical, right, in in which divorce might be allowable because he was not focused on why you ought to get divorced. He was talking about why you ought to stay married. And so the, the teaching is not on reasons for divorce. It's about the sanctity of the marriage. Now, personally for me, I sure wish Jesus had talked about physical abuse and emotional abuse and listed them uh, as exceptions. And it pains me that some women are in marriages where abuse is going on, physical or emotional. And so uh, what do we do? Uh, As a pastor, if a woman came to me and said, you know, this man is beating me, uh, am I allowed to get divorced for this reason? I would not say to her, you need to get back in the house because Jesus didn't give you an exception for physical abuse. I would never say something like that. I would say he's already broken the covenant by being physically abusive to you. So get out of the house get yourself safe. And if, if there is no possible way of reconciliation, then uh, I think Jesus's heart is that a divorce is permissible in that circumstance. But then, of course, the next question is, well, what qualifies as abuse? How much? Uh, and is it just physical or is it emotional abuse, too? And every situation is different, and and reconciliation is always God's goal, and that's why he talks so little about exceptions and so much about marriage itself. And I think that, that, that in our relationship with God and with each other, God wants us to reconcile, but in some situations, it's impossible. And if you're in a situation like that, well, you and only you know uh, if it's impossible to reconcile uh, and, and there's no other option but divorce. So that's just a brief thing about Matthew's exception. Uh, That's a whole separate sermon, Uh, but I just wanted to touch on that since we're talking about divorce. But again, uh, we're we're not in Matthew, we're in Mark, and so uh, I want to talk about why uh, Mark did not allow the exception. And what we have to remember, I think, is is that each gospel writer had his own specific purpose for writing uh, his gospel. Uh, And so he either included or excluded material that would further his purpose and his reason for writing. So I want us to look at verses 10 to 12, and then we'll finish up this discussion thinking about uh, why Jesus did not, or why Mark did not include uh, the immorality exception. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. Uh, In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So here we have another opportunity. He was in public with the crowds, with the Pharisees, and now he's in 
private with his disciples. And, and Mark now has another opportunity to write the exception if he wanted to write the exception here, uh, and he doesn't. So the question is why? Why does Mark not include the exception here? Well, I think the purpose of Mark's gospel, as we've seen throughout the gospel, is to answer the question, what is a disciple? Who is a disciple? What does a disciple look like? Remember in chapter 9, uh, the disciples were arguing among themselves, who, who is the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? And each trying to make a case for themselves. And Jesus' answer that we looked at last week in chapter 9 was 935, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So how does divorce relate to discipleship? Well, in that culture uh, where women had few rights, I think Jesus was teaching that the, the wives were not property of the men and they were not to be treated according to the whims of the husband. And just in case the disciples uh, may have interpreted this as, uh, you know, this only applies to other men, uh, that you need to be servant of all and last of all, or this only applies to other believers, that you need to be first of all, uh, servant of all and last of all. Uh, Jesus is telling them that, that uh, their wives were among those whom they must serve if they wanted to be great in the kingdom of God. And so that's what makes them a disciple. And they did that. They, they became disciples. They, be, they became uh, better disciples by staying married and being servants to their wives. And that was radical in Jesus' day because, as I said, divorce was rampant in that time period. And so Jesus valued that relationship and he valued women's place in society, which was radical for the day. Uh, and he valued all relationships. And so I think his commands are a practical application of Mark 9.35. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And I think that's why Mark focuses on the commitment of marriage rather than uh, the exception, because this is to further his purpose, which is to answer the question, who is a disciple? Now, for you and I, that's not to say we have to choose between Matthew and Mark, because Jesus did teach the exception, and Matthew wrote about it, and it's valid. But Mark didn't include it because he had a different focus than Matthew. And I think that the gospel writers can come at an issue from different angles uh, with their own purposes and still be complementary and not contradictory. So uh, now I want to just finish by talking about two gifts from God. And one of them is specific to this passage. Uh, that is the gift of marriage. But the other gift is a more general gift that applies to all situations, and that is the gift of grace, because that is our greatest need, because we are all sinners in desperate need for Jesus to save us from our sin. So two gifts from God's heart. The first one, the gift of marriage. You know, God gave us the gift of marriage as a gift to be embraced and not a burden to unload, and that's how the Pharisees treated it. Uh, there are so many benefits to marriage, and God said in Genesis, it is good, uh, not good for man to be alone. And so he created Eve for Adam. And so uh, God wants us to have companionship, uh, and uh, God gives us marriage, uh, and he gives us a partnership uh, so that we can have someone to share life with and to face problems and experience blessings. And, you know, among those gifts that God gives uh, to married couples is the gift of sex. That's what he does when he gives them, makes them one flesh. And so having a good marriage is one of the greatest blessings you can possibly experience. And so uh, just a little bit of personal advice uh, for young people here. 
uh, be very careful who you marry. Uh, you need to be very careful that the person you marry is somebody who is a believer, uh, who is very trustworthy and discerning. Uh, so trust your parents' advice on this thing, right? Marry a Christian. Be sure you have a spouse who holds on to a biblical worldview, or you're going to have a very difficult time uh, managing life. You'll face severe challenges. And I can just say personally that... Uh, you know, God's, God said it is not good for a man to be alone, and I've been married for 29 years, and even the, the days when Molly and I are not together, I've still never been alone because of the marriage covenant that exists between us. And it's an incredible blessing, and, and God wants uh, that blessing uh, for, for most people. Now, some people, God, uh, God gives singleness, and I can't say I know why God gives singleness to some people. Uh, but that it does not mean that you are out of God's will if you happen to be single. Uh, that's just God's will for some people. Uh, and God will give you a ministry and, and he will use your life uh, even though you're not married. There's no shame in not being married. It's just God's got one will for some people and one will for other people. So uh, just tremendous personal blessings. And also God has made the family to be this building block of society. You know, we as, as parents, uh, we're supposed to raise our children uh, and teach them uh, how to be productive citizens in society. And, and destruction of the family is one of the greatest problems that we face in society today. Both parents are needed to raise children, to, to educate them, protect them, and help them to learn socialization skills. Uh, parents teach their children how to love sacrificially, uh, how to, to love and be loved uh, by their spouse, what they ought to expect from their spouse when they get married, and to teach them how to be contributing members of society. And so, you know, the massive effect that we see in the world uh, as a result of, you know, drive-through divorces and men, dads not being in the home anymore are plainly evident. Increased crime and drug use and isolation, depression, suicide, uh, the, the rise in, in prison occupancy, more pregnancies out of wedlock, and many other problems. All these things are the result of the breakdown of the family. And God gives us the gift of marriage so that we can perpetuate uh, the human race and, and to teach our children well. And also marriage represents the closest thing on earth that there is to this relationship that exists between the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They live in peace and harmony with each other, and God wants that for us too. God designed marriage to reflect the Trinity and to reflect the covenant relationship that God entered into with us when God sent Jesus to die for our sins. The sacrifice that Jesus made was to reconcile us uh, to God, and it's at the example of the sacrificial relationship we're supposed to have with our spouses. Uh, Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, and Jesus loved the church and died for it. So God said it's not good for man to be alone, uh, and God gave us marriage, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Now, we can't love perfectly and unselfishly like God does, but marriage is one way that God teaches us the lessons of discipleship, to be more like Jesus, to love sacrificially, to put our spouses above ourselves. Uh, so the gift of marriage. And the second thing is the gift of grace. The gift of grace. Some of you have experienced divorce, and I know that. Uh, and many of you didn't want that divorce, but unfortunately in our society, a divorce is, is not two parties required uh, to consent to this. One party can get a divorce all on their own. Uh, and so if your spouse divorced you against your will when you tried to reconcile, you have not sinned. You have done what you could do uh, to save the marriage. 
And God knows your circumstances. He knows the circumstances behind your divorce. So divorce for biblical reasons is not a sin, and neither is it a sin if somebody divorced you against your will. Divorce for unbiblical reasons is a sin, but yet there is always grace at the cross. There's always grace at the cross because Jesus died for the sin of divorce, but for all sin, every sin. Now, I personally have not been divorced, but that does not make me sinless. Far, far from it, right? We all have sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard. And Jesus died for every single sin, not just for divorce. So for those of us who have not been divorced, we need God's grace just as much as anybody who has been divorced. Jesus said to the Pharisees, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses wrote you this commandment. And that's the human condition, hardness of heart toward God, the exact opposite of this love and unity that the members of the Trinity have toward each other. And so the only solution to that problem is faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then Jesus has not forgiven your sin, and you will be held accountable for it when you stand before God someday. And we have no way to justify ourselves in God's presence without Jesus Christ. If we come before him and all we're carrying is our sin baggage, we're in a world of trouble. And that is a terrifying thing uh, to stand before God without Jesus. But because of our faith in Jesus, God looks at us and he doesn't see our sin, whether it's an unbiblical divorce or whether it's lust, greed, pride, deception, theft, any sin you want to name. Uh, God doesn't see that. He sees Jesus because we come clothed in his blood. And that's why I am so grateful for grace. None of us can meet God's standard. Even with the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we still struggle with sin. We still can't meet God's perfect standard of holiness. And that's why God sent Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to live a perfect life, to die for our sin, and to be raised from the dead. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you can claim Romans 8, 1 as yours. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And so the answer, and our only hope, no matter what sin it is, is Jesus Christ. We have to have him if we're going to stand before God someday. And so uh, I would implore us uh, today, uh, if we have not received Jesus Christ, if there's anybody here who has not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, make today the day you do that. You don't want to stand before, before God uh, without Jesus Christ, or the result of that uh, will be eternity in hell. Uh, and God doesn't want that for you, and I don't want that for you. Uh, so uh, that's what I would like to, to have us think about as we close today. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a difficult passage, and um, when we think about divorce, Lord, uh, it, it does not represent your perfect uh, will for marriage, and yet, Lord, we know that, that there's oftentimes we've done the best we can, we've done all we can, and, and still it was out of our control. And Lord, with all sin, we know that we, when we come before you and confess that sin to you, that you uh, forgive that sin. And we're thankful for that, Lord, not only in the context of divorce, but in the context of every sin. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that, that, that paid for us. And Lord, that, that cleanses and purifies us when we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And Lord, we thank you for it, because otherwise we would have no way to stand before you and be accepted into your kingdom. We thank you for grace, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.